Support for this episode comes from the University of San Francisco's SWIG program in Jewish Studies and Social Justice, better known as JSSJ. The JSSJ department is excited to be offering a graduate-level certificate in JEDI, Justice, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion. JEDI classes meet the moment with supportive learning that helps navigate an evolving Jewish community landscape. Upcoming courses include Antisemitism and Intersectionality with acclaimed professor Aaron Han Tapper and Environmental Justice and Jewish Perspectives, Land, People, and Power with renowned activist and educational leader Ariella Ronai Hinich. Apply by January 12th to get in on spring classes before they begin. Just head to usfca.edu slash jedi. This is Judaism Unbound, episode 409, American Jewish Histories, History. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson. And I'm Lex Rofberg. And we hope your conclusion of Hanukkah was delightful, emphasis on the light, and that you purchased lots of gifts in our merch store, especially our Judaism Unbound. There's no right way to spell Hanukkah. There's no right way to be Jewish. T-shirts, mugs, and other merch. If you haven't purchased that, it's not too late. You can give belated Hanukkah presents. I know that I do. And if you're interested in making a donation at this time of year, which many people do, we would also invite you to head over to judaismunbound.com donate to make a small or large donation to Judaism Unbound, because that's really how we continue to do this work. And we really appreciate it. We really hope that at this time of year, our listeners will just take a pause and make a donation just to be counted among the unbounders out there in the world, the unbounded, the people out there that really identify with the ideas of unbounding Judaism that we talk about here and that we're going to talk about today with our guest, Hasia Diner, who is one of the leading American Jewish historians and specifically a historian whose work really does form a lot of the intellectual basis for some of the thinking that we've been doing about not accepting some of the stories that are taught to us, maybe in many cases accidentally, where the message kind of is that, oh, it was always this way. Judaism has always been dynamic. American Judaism has always been super dynamic. And our guest today, Hasia Diner, is one of those historians who helps us tell the story in a way that allows us to build the next Jewish future upon it. If you have only heard of a few American Jewish historians, Hasia Diner is probably one of those few. Hasia Diner has been a trailblazer in the field of American Jewish history for decades. It's absolutely unbelievable that she hasn't been on the show before. Sometimes that happens and we feel really bad about it and we want to do a real corrective. And I think that you're going to find that this episode is that corrective. This seemed like a particularly opportune time to have Hasia Diner on the show because she just celebrated her retirement from many decades of teaching and scholarship at NYU. Just to get a little bit more of a sense of Hasia Diner's legacy, the event that marked the occasion of her retirement was a get-together of the who's who of Jewish studies scholars that was covered in the JTA, one of the largest Jewish publications in the U.S. That's not common. And the article's title says it all, How Scholar Hasia Diner Exploded Myths and Changed the Field of Jewish History, a Symposium. As our listeners know well, we love nothing more than exploding myths and changing Jewish fields, so we couldn't be more excited to welcome Hasia Diner to Judaism Unbound. Just a few more words of introduction. Hasia Diner recently retired from her position as the Paul and Sylvia Steinberg Professor of American Jewish History at New York University, NYU. She continues to serve there as director of the Goldstein-Gorin Center for American Jewish History. 
Hasya Diner has earned some of the highest honors in academia for this work, including a Guggenheim Fellowship, the Lee Max Friedman Award for Distinguished Service from the American Jewish Historical Society, the Saul Wiener Prize for Outstanding Books in American Jewish History, and, unusually for a Judaism Unbound guest, a James Beard nomination for food writing. We would list all the books that she's written, but there are too many and there wouldn't be time for the conversation. So if we have to restrict ourselves to four, we will name those that have either won National Jewish Book Awards or been named finalists for National Jewish Book Awards. Those are We Remember with Reverence and Love, American Jews and the Myth of Silence After the Holocaust, released in 2009. A Jewish Feminine Mystique, Jewish Women in Postwar America, released in 2010. 1929, Mapping the Jewish World, released in 2013, and Roads Taken, The Great Jewish Migrations to the New World and the Peddlers Who Forged the Way, released in 2015. If you're a gambling person, and who among us isn't right after Hanukkah, a lot of games of dreidel, we don't recommend that you bet against Hasya Diner bringing in another award in the next few years because she continues to do research and writing today. And I think you'll see from this conversation, it's pretty interesting. So without further ado, Hasya Diner, welcome to Judaism Unbound. It's a great thrill to have you. It's really a pleasure to be here. And I love the name, both the Unbound, which really taps into how I view history. And I kind of like also the Yeshiva in the notion that learning takes place in so many settings and um, are not confined to a set of um, a single kind of place or a single set of texts. Well, I'm so excited. This is the first time I think that a guest has uh, done an analysis just in the (laughs) uh, being glad to be welcome to the show. So it bodes well for an exciting conversation. I wanted to start just by asking you a little bit to, you know, you've been teaching students for many years. And I'm just sort of wondering, what are the things that you tend to find that maybe need to be unbound in your students, like assumptions that people come in about Mm. Jewish history and why things matter? And, you know, what would be your top three that you'd say, these are ones that I I really, if I had a chance to tell everybody to correct some impression, this is what I'd want to correct. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, it's a great question. And I would say this would fit for both undergraduates and uh, um, amazing students who've been in my PhD program, who finished and are out there really shaping the field in the next generation, is first the idea that, and here we go back to Judaism Unbound, that I think they come in with an idea that Jewish is a hermetically sealed category. And that when you want to study any aspect of Jews, particularly in the United States, you look at what Jews did, okay, and what Jews said, forgetting the fact that Jews were always part of social political processes that involved other people as well, and that the history of the Jews of the United States, and I don't want to make comments about other places because I'm not an expert on France or Poland or wherever, although it probably holds there also, it was constantly in conversation with other people who had different experiences, came in with different ways of looking at the world, and the Jews were not bound by uh, by themselves. Okay. Um, secondly, we cannot overemphasize anti-Semitism. Jewish practices, Jewish social practices, political, were always in reaction to negative, hostile forces around them. And um, Jews made choices about where to... Now, certainly, I'm not saying there wasn't discrimination. So 
for example, I was recently did a um, in taping for a, a film about the Catskills and the Jewish leisure world of you know the post-war period, and all of the uh, the writers and the uh, people behind it were sure it was about anti-Semitism. They couldn't get into the other places, so they founded these resorts. Well, I said, how do you know that? Maybe they had no interest in eating white bread with spam on it and wanted to go to places where they could eat what they like. They could talk how they like. They could. It wasn't that others kept them out. It just they wanted in those leisure settings to be by themselves. And it was a chance to kind of um, metaphorically let their hair down and to be in a comfortable environment. So don't over, that would be my second uh, little lesson, is don't overdo the hostility as the um, engine that drove the choices that Jews made. Thirdly, I'll probably give you four now. Thirdly, let's always be careful when we talk about the Jews. There is no such thing as the Jews then or now. And you can't really say Jews did X because they were a varied people and they had vast internal differences in terms of ideology and ideas about what it meant to be Jewish, what it meant to be American. And they had vastly different stakes in the political and economic order. I'm always struck, you know, usually in early March when we, uh, the sort of Jewish media starts talking about the triangle fire and the tragedy. Remember, this was Jews doing this to Jews. I mean, the, the owners of triangle were, Jew, were other Jews and the opponents of Jewish unionization were other Jews. And we have to think about um, they had different stakes in the outcome of a particular economic relationship. Okay. Obviously, I have my heroes. Okay. My heroes were the women on strike. But if you can't talk about the Jews, I'm really want students to come away with, in fact, I want them to begin with an understanding of the privileges which uh, Jews had in the United States. And, uh, you know, there's obviously a big discussion now, and it's been raging for, I don't know, maybe 20 years about Jews and whiteness and so on. It is to me so important that the students not confuse sponsive discrimination or ugly t- rhetoric or obviously they were always there, pernicious stereotypes and the privileges of being white, which Jews were from the get go. Color mattered more than anything. It was a difference between being a slave okay, and having no control over your body and no control over your life. Or it's opposite. I become almost livid when students or even some of my colleagues will confuse um, the expansion of access in private institutions to becoming white. So those are, you asked me for three, I gave you four. Look, that's a, that's a great deal. If, uh, buy three, get one free. That's fantastic. <laughs> so I, I want to start with just a factual anecdote. I, as a sophomore in college, enrolled in a class called American Jewish History. I was at the time a math major and I was in American Jewish History. The first assignment I had was to read Her Works Praise Her, which was a book by you. And I'm not lending causation to this exclusively, but by the end of that semester, I was no longer thinking of myself as a math major. I was thinking of myself as a Judaic studies major. Oh, wow. Um, That's really, I have to say, my, my heart is fluttering. 
look, it's it's a credit to you. It's a credit also just to my experience generally in that class, mm -hmm. studying American Jewish history and kind of feeling selfish is I didn't feel selfish, but like it was fun studying a Jewish thing that felt like this is actually like me. This, the, like mm -hmm. this is this is the context I lived in. And now we were looking at eras long before I existed. But like mm -hmm. I came into that class, if we're talking about what my assumptions were subconsciously, I was so used to Jewish learning being about things that weren't so directly me. They were mm -hmm. about ancient things. So, you know, Bible to some extent, you know, Talmud and rabbinic texts. And they were about places that were not where I lived. They were about mostly Europe and Israel, but even mm -hmm. when, uh, but like, it was kind of liberating to have the experience in a college classroom where like, oh, I'm part of this too. Not just sort of vicariously, not because my ancestors lived in a place and they're part of this story and I'm genealogically connected to them, but actually like what my Jewish community in Milwaukee that I grew up in, and by the way, you also grew up in yes, that Milwaukee yeah. Jewish community. What they were doing is actually part of quote unquote Jewish history. I don't. I, I mean, I think if you had asked me whether I thought that at the beginning of the class, I probably would have said yes, right? Like, I, I know history encompasses all places and Jewish, but like in my bones, I think I kind of would have said most Jewish history it lives in other places. And so mm -hmm. I'd kind of love to hear from you. Like, I don't think I'm alone in that. I think there's a lot of people now and especially decades ago for whom. Jewish studies or Jewish learning, whatever context we're talking about, is mostly about places that are not America and time mm -hmm. periods that are not the last few hundred years. The core things that get the most bandwidth, they are Bible, they are rabbinic texts. I'm curious to hear from you, like, whether my experience has been had by many people and American Jewish history has sort of gained a place. Like, where does American Jewish history fit into how we do you know, Jewish studies generally, and how has that evolved a bit over your career? So, I mean, I want to turn back to an essay written before my time even uh, by Sal Albert He um, was involved with the kind of early stages, and he made the pitch very much like you, but with a slight twist. And he said, Jewish history is not only about these canonical texts, and it's not only about anti-Semitism. It's not only about persecution. Okay. And by the way, that's one reason America was kind of off the radar because you don't have any great pogroms to point to. You don't have any expulsions. The American story was, in fact, a very different one than the history of Jews in other places. I think what American Jewish history has done, and not to take too much claim for it, is it has convinced, I think, the um, Jewish historical world, the scholars of Jewish history, that history need not be limited to great ideas or great persecution, but the ways in which individuals, families on their own or in concert with their kin or with their metaphoric, literal or metaphoric kin, navigate the uh, context in which they live. And what is important is not just what laws got passed, but rather the way in which individuals, in that case, individual women, chose to shape identity and chose to shape their uh, participation in the public sphere and how they challenged um, what had been inherited from the past. 
Um, I think that American Jewish historians, even those who don't study women, have uh, made a really good, con- a really important contribution to uh, pushing the envelope as to what is a uh, valid topic, what what constitutes history. So I should say that when I was working on my book on um, food, one of my older colleagues said to me, food, that's not history. What a silly thing to do. And when I said I was working on women, they said, what do they do? Well, somebody said, I didn't think there were any Jewish women in the United States until Henrietta Zold. So what are you talking about? They were all bachelors until then. <laughs> so, I mean, there was resistance. There was resistance. And I think there probably are still some people out there who view the kinds of work that we, and I'm a, a part of a, a cohort, as it were, began to storm the barricades uh, metaphorically with, with our writing, saying all these other things are as important to um, Jewish history as are those great dusty books on the shelves or the, um, and what Baron called the lacrimose uh, view um, of um, Jewish suffering. I have a kind of historiographical question that relates to what you just said and also what you said earlier. I was thinking about, for example, you're talking about how the story of Jewish American Jewish history is told as if anti-Semitism, for example, is the explanation for all kinds of things like why they had the Catskills. There's a a view of history that says, oh, it was all because of anti-Semitism. And then there's a history that looks at the true story and says, well, actually, it wasn't necessarily all about anti-Semitism. And I'm curious about how we think about the fact that we are the inheritors, in a sense, of both streams of of that equation. Because Mm -hmm. on the one hand, we're inheriting a history of people who wrongly have been thinking for 50 years or however long that everything flows from anti-Semitism, and their wrong understanding is part of the way to understand how they've acted throughout history. And at the same time, we also can look back before that and say, but actually they were wrong, and we're inheritors of the true facts as well. So how do we kind of sort that through from a history thinking standpoint? Right. So from a history thinking standpoint, what one has to deal with is complexity, and since Lex opened up the Milwaukee uh, category there, I just say that um, my parents were both immigrants from Eastern Europe, and my father um, would never ride on the bus reading his Yiddish or Hebrew paper, um, and he would find an English paper in the trash because we didn't get the English paper, and he'd cover it. Okay, And I asked him, why are you doing it? And um, so we know nobody has to know what I'm reading. And I said, did anything bad ever happen to you here? And he said, no. And uh, and we were also, by the way, we'd go from um, public school to Hebrew school. And the teachers, my dad was one of them, told us to wrap our Hebrew books in like tinfoil or um, like a book cover, brown paper, like an old uh, shopping bag. Because again, why should somebody know? And the few times in 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 that those years where somehow the issue of stunning Hebrew or whatever came up, it elicited absolutely no negative response. But oh wow, that's really interesting. And um, how interesting you're learning another language. I'm not saying that there was no anti-Semitism there, but 
we, I was, you know, shaped by people who came with that legacy. And I had to figure out who I was. And I think this helped make me an American Jewish historian with the uh, absence of any of that uh, in the world I occupied. I think, Dan, the, 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 the answer is to always look for complexity and to say it's not one or the other, but it is the constant colliding of memories, expectations, realities. And I think there's often been a political reason, political context in which Jewish communal leaders hyped the amount of anti-Semitism that they believed existed or that they wanted the public to believe. And often this was, um, without being totally cynical, but I may as well be, um, it was intended either explicitly or not um, to get people to join their organization, to subscribe to a particular political program. And God, you know, maybe even 20 years ago, mail um, that said Berlin, 1938, United States, 2008, the same story. Well, obviously, it was not the same story. And to me, and this was happened to come from the ADL, I mean, I thought it was just really cheap. But the more you get that stuff, the more you then start getting into a kind of frenzy about, oh, my God, it's everywhere. And so to elevate this to a kind of uh, pervasive anti-Semitism, it seems to me not totally not analytic as well as not empathetic. So I'm interested, you brought up food a couple of times, and I want to dwell there for a second. And not just food as food. First off, like we're recording this around lunchtime. Right. Um, I'm really hungry. So. <laughs> but I actually, I reread a foreword of yours to a book called Feasting and Fasting. And we've had a number of the authors in that book on in the past. Um, you write the foreword and it starts with food matters. What a great way to start an essay. One of the most, <laughs> on a certain level, unambiguously true things you could say ever. I don't think there's a person on the planet who would <laughs> argue that food does not matter to their life. But I think also the, the scholar you talked about, who's like, food? Why are you? That's silly. Why are you writing about food? I think that is still somehow the sense of a lot of people that yeah, sure, food matters to our day-to-day -day lives, but it doesn't matter to the books we read about history. It's just, you know, mm -hmm. it's fuel for us that we put into our bodies to exist. And then, you know, we do the things in our lives that are worth commenting out about in history books. But the food itself, that's just like, oh, it's between, it's between the history parts of our lives. And it's not itself history. When I talk about it that way, I mean, clearly, I think that's ludicrous. And I, I think that anybody who really processes how human beings work, like, the food we eat, the food we don't eat, who we eat it with, where we eat it, why we eat it, for what occasions we eat it, like like all of that clearly, you could say it ties to historical questions, but even that, that implies that it in and of itself is not a historical set of considerations. It implies that it is adjacent to those. So food is one example. I'm not really asking about food, but food is one example of a much broader set of categories that I think you and others, from my perspective, seem to have played a role in better centering, better legitimizing as topics of discussion in Jewish history. And I really want to sit with that because like, when I read about food or when I read about, I don't know, like history of Jewish pop culture, or history of all sorts of realms that 
people like to marginalize in history books, often I either see you popping up right in the forward or <laughs> the people writing it in I'm a big reader of acknowledgments. I love acknowledgment sections. Like they seem to cite you as a very key influence. And I'm not saying that to pump you up. I'm saying that just because it is true. I think you mm-hmm. seem to be a matriarch of what I think of in my head as a, as a rabbi, but you don't have to think of it this way, as uh, you seem to be a matriarch of this too is Torah. This set of mm-hmm. things you didn't think matter, they actually do matter and are worth commentary in Jewish history books. Mm-hmm. And from my perspective, as somebody working in Jewish life, they, they merit more commentary in Sunday school classrooms and in yeshivas, whatever. And so I'd love to hear from you t- to the extent that has been a role you've actively taken, arguing for the legitimacy of entire realms of scholarship that have previously not been sort of okay enough to talk about in a history textbook. Like, why have you been doing that? And have you succeeded? Has the field changed in the ways that you hoped it has? Because my sense is that, like, a lot of American Jewish historians have bought into those changes and are writing entire histories of food, entire histories of women and others that were marginalized. I think what impelled me to do this is a, there's a Yiddish expression. I think it maybe it's also in Hebrew, it's aftzaluchas, sort of like, contrarianness. If everybody's going straight, ah, I'm going to go to the other direction. As a historian, and I've written, by the way, about non-Jewish topics also, I'm always interested in if everybody says such and such is the core, such and such what is, I want to pause and say, how do they know that? Why have they said that for so long? Hasn't anybody ever questioned it? Let me turn this history on its head. Let's take it in a different direction. And who knows, maybe they were right. But we don't know that unless we explore alternative ways of understanding and thinking about the past, which pushes us into the archives and into the sources. And without being too narcissistic, I've never been wrong. And I say that because um, when people have said, you'll, first, you'll never find anything. And secondly, everybody knows. Then I say, oh, no, 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 I don't know it. I'm going to look. <laughs> and so I think one of, one of the books I've really, I'm, yeah, I'm really proud of all my books. They're kind of like my children. I'm proud of all of my children, my three children. But, you know, there was a long, long, long uh, truth articulated, you know, starting from the 70s and 80s, that in the post-war period, American Jews would not, could not, did not talk about the Holocaust. And um, they put it, one writer said, in the subterranean basement of their consciousness. And another said it was only talked about around the dining room table. And I was particularly incensed by uh, Peter Novick's The Holocaust in American Life. And I'd actually been asked to write the blurb for his book. And I was really honored. I mean, I was I thought um, of Novick as just like one of the great figures in um, in the history of history, as it were. And um, I read the book. I said to the editor from um, I think it was Houghton Mifflin, I can't write this because it's wrong. I thought, let me write an article about, uh, you know, sort of the post-war American Jewish moment and what was being said and done and performed and written and 
acted upon in the name of the Holocaust. And I thought I'd write an article. I was going to give myself one summer to work on this. And I ended up having to buy a four drawer file cabinet. And obviously it ended up in, in a book. Um, and I almost, um, am, you know, there's a degree of frustration because people still continue to say it, um, that it is not possible if you look at the sources to go with common sense or to go with the um, established truth or the orthodoxy of it. You have to go into those archives yourself and look. And again, if somebody said everybody knows it, then I I stop. Now, again, is it a perverse personality? I don't know. I think it's being a good researcher and being um, really curious about why knowledge looks the way it does. You know, I wrote a book on Jewish peddlers. What's that? They were just a bunch of, you know, guys on the road. And what came across to me is these were the bearers of um, Jewish uh, integration into the new world. And they played an incredibly powerful role, not learned, not politically organized, but going house to house, selling needles and thread and sheets and uh, pillowcases made them almost like the ambassadors of Judaism to populations that had never had any uh, encounter with Jews before. They made history. They don't show up anyplace else. And again, people say, you'll never find anything about them. I refuse to give in to the, uh, you'll never find anything that will further your, um, your writing. I mean, I think in terms of the, the payback or the, the, the payoff, there are so many other people who I think are really played a pivotal role in this. Paula Hyman, Todd Endelman, Deborah Dashmore. And we were all, by the way, age mates. And here I think we're going to, I want to circle back to the why. We just kind of said, no, I'm not going to argue with anybody's interpretation of Rashi. I mean, I have no knowledge to, to be able to do that. And I'm not going to say he wasn't an incredibly powerful intellectual force. But no, that's not the only thing we have to study. And we were the boomers, right? We were the ba- children of the baby boom. And so here I t- you know, want to look at a bigger generational analysis, which is, for one thing, we just overwhelmed all the institutions we were ever in. Okay, soon it will be the nursing homes. <laughs> and, um, you know, we came of age in the 1960s during um, student protest during um, the civil rights movement, the anti-war movement. And it well, the air was just like electric in terms of um, telling us everything you've been taught heretofore might be wrong. Question, we came of age at this moment where we were shrugging off. Um, you know, I think some of us more than others, I happen to have been very active um, in civil rights in high school and then in the anti-war movement. And we were shrugging off those restraints that's, um, that, I mean, obviously they were also behavioral, but um, restraints about what you could think and what you could um, ask. And the professors who made the greatest impact on me uh, were professors who said, before you accept anything, find out how they know what they said. On what basis are they making those statements? And uh, so it was in the classrooms, but more, I think maybe more importantly, it was just, you know, on the campus and it was protest and uh, disagreement and um, questioning authority. 
Okay, and the authority could be the dorm, the rules of the dorm, right, or whatever. But the authority also was saying, this is what you have to study. This is what uh, literature looks like. This is what history looks like. And our you know, answer was, no, it's not. For people studying U.S. history, which is where I entered this or where I still am, um, you know, it begins with Black, with, uh, black history, and um, that was the um, the kind of opening wedge, okay, and saying you know all the dates are wrong, all the uh, the chronology is off, the assumptions are off. Start from scratch. Maybe this is a good segue to explore a little bit of one of my interests, but I, I think it's been one of our interests, and uh, to, to to think about philanthropy in particular. You wrote a book about Julius Rosenwald. He was at a certain point the owner of Sears Roebuck and an important philanthropist, an important Jewish philanthropist in two ways of thinking about it. One is that he gave philanthropy within the Jewish community, but but maybe even more importantly, he gave philanthropy outside the Jewish community, but understood it to be coming from his Judaism. And in particular, he set up a, a set of schools for African-Americans that were very significant. And all of these are things that you investigated in your book on Julius Rosenwald. So I'm, I'm curious, are there things that you could tell us about Julius Rosenwald and how he thought about being Jewish and how he thought about Jewish philanthropy and the purpose of that that might have real resonance in our world today? Okay, I and mean, that's a great question. So first, I want to say that I wrote about Rosenwald in my very first book, which was my dissertation, which was on sort of Jewish, I mean, it's a book I would, if I could rewrite it, I would. And at that point, I was still very much a 70s, 60s, you know, radical. And uh, I didn't like him then. But by the time I wrote um, the book for the Jewish Live series, I really was very moved by his um, vision. Many Jewish historians didn't really know who he was, or they vaguely had some idea. And if they knew anything about him, they knew that he gave to Black causes. And they all said, oh, he was an assimilationist, and he didn't really care about um, Jews, which was just like so not true. One reason his name disappeared from our landscape, unlike so many other philanthropists, he wouldn't let his name be used in any kind of demonstrative way. So there is only one building in the entire world with his name, and it was put up against his will, um, which is the University of Chicago has uh, Rosenwald Hall. He'd been on a long vacation, and he came back and it was chiseled there already. But otherwise, his papers are full of... Um, um, institutions that wrote and said, oh, could you give us blah, blah, blah amount of money and we'll put your name up. That was like the kiss of death. I he didn't want his name up. He also um, believed in giving in concert with others. He's essentially the person who founded the joint, the Joint Distribution Committee, which was to uh, relieve the stress and to say help the Jews of um, Central and Eastern Europe and, and Palestine during World War One. And he got up and he said, I will give, you know, and he gave an amount if others will give the same amount. So he never gave a loan. He didn't believe in um, endowments. He said every generation has to address its own problems. He also had such a tremendous um, optimistic belief in um, human beings. Died in 1932. He didn't see the rise of Nazism. Um, he would have never imagined that that could happen. Okay, because he thought you know human beings could 
find ways to uh, to work together. And I came in a way I wrote that book during the Trump era, and I was uh, very much uh, in awe of someone who saw that their own fate was tied up with the fate of other people, and that the fate of the Jews was tied up with other people. And that society was an organism that depended on everybody and that it wasn't just for rich guys to trample on others. And um, I might not agree and happen to have opposed women's suffrage. Okay. And obviously I'm for women's suffrage and he opposed labor unions. That's a hot take. Yeah, I'm for I'm for labor unions. Um, But, you know, he really made this tremendous impress that everybody's fate is tied up with everyone else's. I do want to, I, I want to shift gears a little bit. I, I think it's related, actually, but I, I want to shift gears because the very first couple episodes we had of this podcast, one of the first things that I said was that I have a bone to pick with a particular phrase, and it's, quote unquote, the Jewish community. And Absolutely. I said then, and I continue to stand behind it now, that we do unbelievable damage to the Jewish population to like all Jews generally and occasionally to the world when we think that sort of the Jewish story at any given time can be distilled to what a certain set of mainstream Jewish institutions are doing. And so given that you're a historian and that you write about Jewish stories at any given time and how they flow together, I really want to sit with that because what I hear from you, and you, you even talked about this pretty directly before with how people talk about the Jews. For me, this is sort of a mm-hmm. version of that. But like, we have told people, I think, usually implicitly, but sometimes explicitly, that there's certain kinds of Jews that are the Jewish story, and there's certain kinds of Jews that aren't. And often it's ideologically driven. I mean, I, I'm imagining a few decades from now when people are telling the history of American mm-hmm. Jews in the 2020s, there's going to be some yelling matches. Is uh-huh, uh-huh. The, the Jewish story to be found in what Jewish federations and Jewish community centers and synagogues are doing right now? And when I say right now, I am kind of alluding to what's happening in Israel-Palestine and how American mm-hmm. institutions and American Jewish institutions are responding. Can we find sort of the true quote-unquote Jewish story in how mainstream Jewish institutions respond? I think if you ask most people where to find like what Jews think about Israel or about Israel-Palestine, they often will point towards those institutions. I think the way to find out what Jews think is to look at what Jews, independent of their affiliations with institutions, think. Mm -hmm. And so I'm much more interested in sort of the Jewish population writ large and whether they're setting foot in institutions Mm -hmm. or not, what their stories are, what their driving ideas are, how they tie them to Jewishness, to Judaism, whatever. And I think often that leads me to want to deprioritize the stories of what federations are doing, of what rabbis are doing, whatever. Not that those people are not part of Jewish history, but they're a part that tends to be overrepresented in the broader story. And the millions of Jews that are not those people are less represented. And that's I think that's what you're getting at with the peddlers, right? Like those those are not the people that tend to be centered historically. So I kind of wanted to ask for your commentary on like, are we doing damage by assuming, presuming that the Jewish story is mostly found in like buildings that have Jewish in their name, Jewish federations, Jewish community centers, whatever? Might we be better served by looking at what Jews do in and out of those institutions? Uh, Absolutely. So for one thing, I'm, I'm so taken by your comment. 
And I too do not let students use the word the Jewish community because there is no such thing. For one thing, there are multiple institutions. And at some point or another, they band together for some purpose. And usually when they banded together, they spent much of their time fighting with each other. So there's no such thing. And they're not only just those formal institutions, but then there's the life on the street. I'm interested, for example, I wanted, I've wanted a student to write um, a history of um, Jewish retail and the mom and pop stores and, um, you know, of, of the immigrant first, second generation, particularly in the cities. In fact, there was uh, something that nobody has picked up upon and um, written in, a, in an expansive way is uh, there was a book that came out, I think, in the 70s about Boston. And it said the real blow to the Boston Jewish uh, uh, neighborhood in the Dorchester area was not when the synagogues left. It was when the H&H deli left. No, the G&G, I'm sorry, the G&G deli. That was the death blow to the community. Um, and obviously it touches back to my food's interest. But those places, uh, the beauty parlors where the women went, uh, the barber shops, just standing on the street corner, most Jews at most times did not belong to synagogues. I mean, it's very low now, but other than in the um, 18th century, when Jews kind of had to be part of the synagogue because there were no alternative institutions. There was no way to be, to get buried, to get married, to get charity, and so on. If you didn't, you weren't under the um, umbrella of the one synagogue in the five cities. After that, most people didn't belong. And, you know, they might belong to a B'nai B'rith Lodge, or they might belong to some other kind of fraternal order, or they might just get together to play Pinochle. That's, by the way, a really great, uh, there's a good book, not written from um, Jewish studies perspective, but it's a great book on Mahjong. And she really is interested in the differences between Jew, the meaning of Mahjong to Jews and Asian Americans, primarily Chinese. But, you know, that's how people, that's where Jews argued with each other, recreated with each other, met each other. Yet the Jewish community implies, for one thing, an overarching structure, okay, with elected officers or big donors that these communities could impose um, uniformity in behavior and um, does it cause harm? Well, I just think it causes the writing of bad history. Okay. And um, harm, maybe, um, if one is thinking about perhaps some contemporary politics that is, and here, maybe I'm going to be veering onto something that's uh, more controversial than you want. But if you were driving through some densely Jewish suburb and you saw one synagogue after another with signs that say, we stand with Israel, if you didn't know better, you think, okay, that's what Jews are about. Okay. And not anything else, because there is no sign saying we stand with Torah or we stand with camaraderie. Okay. Or we stand with social justice. It's we stand with Israel. But I think historians should excise that word or that phrase, the Jewish three, I guess three words, the Jewish community from their lexicon and to talk about communal institutions or perhaps attempts at communal self-governance all of which fail, 
and come up with some other word. And you said the Jewish population, but not the community. And by the way, I think the use of it is um, very much reflecting a, a kind of European model where there was a kahila or a gemeinde. You know, there was a formally, a before emancipation, and even in some cases after a formally state-recognized governing body of the Jews. Okay, well, that's exactly what America was not. Jews could get up and do whatever they wanted and call it Jewish. And um, they could have a Jewish bingo club, a Jewish badminton club, whatever, and pickleball. And it's as Jewish as a synagogue or as anything else. I might also, Lex, want to go back to something um, you've said, which is I think that uh, one of the interesting developments in the you know contemporary world really since the late 20th century um, is the rise of um, synagogues, which are just not affiliated, groups of like-minded people who sort of are uncomfortable with the institutions that do exist and um, say, hey, let's form our own. Again, the American model is it has the same heft, you know, the same tax exempt status as the synagogue that's been sitting there with great uh, ascending columns and potted palm trees and rabbis, you know, who beam, you know, who sort of uh, boom from the um, beam out from the podium, you know, from the dais um, as uh, any, you know, that they're equal in the eyes of the state, which is they get tax exempt status, okay, like any religious institution. And I think, to me, what's really interesting, if I were going to study the um, more contemporary period in American Jewish history, is I'd want to look at all of these extra, non-affiliated, non, uh, with, you know, leaders who are not, you know, ordained, nobody's put their hands on them and given them some kind of holy um, status. And how do people organize these things themselves? Yeah. That is so important, and I'm really thinking about the right now. And I, I know that when I when we talk to scholars, they often don't want to talk about right now, and they definitely don't want to speculate about the future. So I'm not going to frame right. this as, <laughs> tell me the future, Hasya Diner. I am going to frame this as, let's take as a given what I think is true, which is that there are going to be people who study right now in American Jewish life. I, I'm not I'm not focusing this on Israel-Palestine itself. I, I want to, I mean, I, I am in my life really thinking about that constantly, but like there are going to be people that seek to tell the Jewish story or the Jewish stories, I think that's probably better, of this better. moment. And they have choices to make. And I'm interested in naming some of them and being really explicit because right now there are battles, not with weapons in the streets, but with words and articles and whatever about who counts as authentically being a Jewish story. And that's going to play out in in people talking about this time period too. For And, and you talk about, you know, people arising and forming unaffiliated synagogues. There's also people, I'm on a thread right now in, on a, in a Facebook group of hundreds of people who are part of Jewish communities in some form that are arising because of frustration with mainstream Jewish institutions right now. And by the way, I'm using mainstream Jewish institutions kind of in quotes because that's another like, who decided they're mainstream? Right. Yeah. They decided. <laughs> yeah. To, to go with your question of like, question things that people are just saying without evidence, like 
on what stream are they main? There are There is data out there that suggests a lot of things about American Jewish opinion, and that data is not usually being cited as the reason for which certain organizations are quote-unquote mainstream. It's usually just that they have claimed that space in a, in a community. Let's take, for example, participating in rallies organized by a Jewish Voice for Peace or by an If Not Now or whatever. And what a lot of people say now, and I think might say in the future, is well, that's not the Jewish story. They are rebels against the main Jewish story, which is the people standing with Israel, for example. And so if I'm going to tell the story of what Jews stood for or what Judaism was or whatever, and I don't really like any of those framings, but if I were going to tell that story, I'm going to start with what those synagogues are doing with their signs that say stand with Israel. Will I footnote that some people disagreed with them? Yeah, I probably will, but they'll be foils to the main story, which is what Jewish institutions do. And I think others would articulate, no, 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 no. The precise story is all of these Jews going to rallies, singing Jewish songs in Hebrew and Yiddish and whatever, citing values and texts and traditions and holidays that anchor them in Jewishness and call them towards different kinds of action. Um, and by the way, I'm not saying they're the Jewish story either. I'm saying all of this is part of it. And there are people who are politically invested in marking one side of that equation as actually not Jewish, as actually standing against quote unquote Judaism. How would you recommend we think about the Jewish story that is evolving as we speak right now in American Jewish life? Uh-huh. So in some ways, what's evolving has precedent in the past. Okay. And, you know, if you went back to the turn of the 20th century, I mean, there were socialists, there were anarchists. Most people didn't belong to synagogues. There was just a kind of plethora of, you know, uh, uh, ways in which Jews engaged with this thing called um, Jewish. And it's only um, the people at the top okay, who put themselves on the top. And then the historians who limit their framework or limit their interest to those guys on the top who will decide who's in and who's out. But in and out is utterly subjective. So for the contemporary period, for what's going on right now in the last, you know, 20 years, and I can I mention that, Lex, we first interacted through Open Hello, which was, I was just thrilled with that because- Which it, just for context is a movement to expand the boundaries of discourse about Israel-Palestine in Hillel's in Jewish centers on college campuses. I uh, was so thrilled to see a name given to what what I observed was a phenomenon is that so many Jewish students would say, I'm never going to Hillel. It's only about Israel. Okay. And it's been captured by, you know, the Orthodox students. And I feel really uncomfortable there. A good historian will, even if they want to write about the federations, I mean, there's no reason to not write about the federations, but it has to take account of the fact that the federations are constantly conscious of the existence of this other movement or these other movements. They may say, hey, we are the community, but they are scared down to their toes that this other wave is beginning to crest. And so you can't understand what the federations are doing without giving equal attention to what JVP is doing. And if not now, and uh, Open Hell is called Jew- Jewish on our own terms. And, you know, 
you can't read the forward with forward, you know, the kind of, I don't know, mainstream-ish Jewish newspaper um, without, in fact, they know perfectly well what's going on in the pages of Jewish Currents. So what they, what the mainstream- And just to be clear, Jewish Currents being another, being like another voice of folks to the left of- to the, Yeah, and, and, and very critical of the community establishment, the so-called establishments, whatever you want to call it, are always looking over their shoulder, terrified about the uh, uh, upsurge of um, activism by young people and even some of us older people who are very supportive of it. But on the other hand, if I was going to be writing this history of the rejection of the Federation model and the kind of more dissident, uh, and again, I don't, I don't know what word I want to use for the kind of upsurge from the left. They too were looking over their shoulders all the time and they're conscious of, okay, what are the Federations doing? And so it's a constant in and out, back and forth. No history is self-encapsulated. So that um, when you're writing the history of you're writing the history of the mom and pop stores, those little grocery stores, you have your eyes on the rise of the AMP, you know, and uh, you have the little family pharmacy and you're concerned about Walgreens. How you are framing your place in the present is shaped by these factors that you see as in competition, that you see as threatening. And then the question is, how do you respond? And certainly the way Jewish leadership from the top responds is by calling anybody who doesn't agree with them a bad Jew. Okay, self-hating is my favorite. And I have been actually, I was asked once when I was about to be canceled from a speech, what can you tell us to prove you're not an anti-Semite? I mean, how does one justify, you know, sort of proclaim that I'm not an anti-Semite? Um, but that's the, you know, that is the um, the way to cut somebody off at the, in the at the knees, right? And you're not in this community. You're an outsider uh, because you don't share our views. You're an anti-Semite. You're a self-hater. Whatever, you know, whatever uh, word of choice. But, uh, you know, and we could probably go through the rhetoric on the Jewish left. Can again, I'm not, I don't even know if that's the right word I want to use. And they too are, I would say, have a, a kind of um, pretty stilted view of their opponents. Everybody is in conversation with everybody else, even if it's to show why I'm different and why I'm better. As the historian, you want to stand back. And you want to examine, you don't want to answer who was right and who was wrong, who was better, who was worse, but rather, how did they feed off each other? Okay. And how did the existence of, say, again, a dissenting groundswell, JVP, not, if not, no, how did that then motivate the and shape the way in which the federations responded? Thank you so, so much, Hasi Diner, for joining us. This has been an absolutely amazing conversation. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, you provided me with so much um, to think about and um, really shaping my perspective on what I'm going to write next. <laughs> well, that might just be the thing that leads my nerdy Jewish studies heart to soar into the stratosphere. That is super cool that we might have played a role in influencing your future work. Thanks to you for joining us and thanks to everybody else out there for listening. We hope that you enjoyed this conversation and that you'll tune in with us in the future. We also hope that you had an amazing holiday of Hanukkah, that it was filled with light and with joy and with loved ones, and 
hopefully with some fried food too. That's really important. But we want to close out this episode in the same way that we always do by encouraging you to be in touch with us. And there are a wide variety of ways for you to do that. First, you can head to our Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram pages. All of those are at Judaism Unbound for our handles. Second, there's our website, JudaismUnbound.com, where you can find show notes for this episode, other resources, all sorts of good stuff. Third, you can email us via dan at JudaismUnbound.com or lex at JudaismUnbound.com. We also are super, super appreciative, especially this time of year, if you are able to support us financially, which you can do via a one-time gift or a recurring donation via JudaismUnbound.com donate. It goes a long, long way towards continuing the work that we do. So if you have appreciated this, if you're a regular listener, if this is your first time, we hope that you will take a second and give us a gift. Any size makes a huge difference. And the last thing we'd say is that, of course, support for this episode of Judaism Unbound comes from the Ashman Family JCC in Palo Alto, California, whose vision is to be the architects of the Jewish future. The Ashman Family JCC empowers you to experience Jewish paths toward a life of joy, purpose, and meaning through innovative Jewish learning and wellness programs, community building, and initiatives to develop the next generation of Jewish leaders. Learn more at www.paloaltojcc.org. And with that, this has been Judaism Unbound.